choices. <coughs> Life is made up of choices. There's a Peanuts Gang cartoon that illustrates a bit of the confusion regarding choices. Peppermint Patty raises her hand, ma'am, what kind of test are we having today? Multiple choice? Oh, good. I choose not to take it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Peppermint Patty does not have the same understanding of choices pertaining to the multiple choice exam as presented by the teacher. There's not a day that goes by, probably not an hour, that we are not forced to make a choice that might have a significant impact on our lives. The call to wor worship this morning that Jesse read from Joshua 24. Choose this day who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. A, a very similar Scenario to that presented by Moses at the end of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 30 where he goes through the choices and he says I've set before you life and death choose life now in fact I had to make a choice as to whether or not I wanted to use a quotation uh, that's there at the head of your sermon study guide. I really liked it when I first read it. And I still do. I didn't know who wrote or said it. I made the decision to include it because who said it doesn't really change the appropriateness and truthfulness of the statement. In this life, we have to make many choices. Some are very important choices. Some are not. Many of our choices are between good and evil. The choices we make, however, determine to a large extent our happiness or our unhappiness because we have to live with the consequences of our choices. This is actually a quote from a man by the name of James Faust who served in the House of Representatives uh, for the 28th Utah State Legislator. Um, he was also appointed by President John F. Kennedy to the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and was an advisor to the American Bar or the Legal Journal. Uh, but he was also a leader in what's known as the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons. Uh, but that, however, doesn't change the truthfulness of his statement. We all have to make choices. And some of the choices we make are important, and some of them are trivial, menial. We make many that are good. And we make many that are bad choices. I, I probably made a bad choice Thursday night. We decided that when my class finished a little after 8.30, that instead of trying to get up Friday and not knowing what we would face, we went ahead and set out at 8.30, about 9 o'clock our time, 10 o'clock their time, set out for Indianapolis where the board meeting was going to go. And uh, there were sections of the roads that were pretty bad. I had to slow down to 75. Um, <laughs> our choices 
do determine our happiness. And not only that, our choices greatly expand or limit our future. Example, when I came out of, a, of high school, I wanted to be a doctor. I went to Wabash College as pre-med. I chose Wabash College not only because they gave me a, a full-ride scholarship to play football, but I chose it because out of their previous two years, they had one of the highest percentage of pre-med students who made it on into medical school. But I chose very quickly to go to Lincoln. I, I was still at that time really wanting to be a doctor. But that choice to go to Lincoln instead of stay at Wabash began limiting the opportunity. Not to say that I couldn't have because one of my classmates at Lincoln did end up going on to medical school. But our choices can limit or expand our futures. And though many in this day and age don't like it, we have to live with the consequences of the choices we make. I know there's not a specific verse, I don't have one in mind at least, but a consistent teaching of Scripture is that being a Christian, being a true disciple, means living a life that is consistent in terms of the choices we make. Otherwise, the label hypocrite is quickly attached. And as Matthew is nearing the conclusion of his recording of Jesus' sermon, and that was what was really neat about the session of Chosen that Jesse and I watched last night. It really gave some insight into this character of, of what did you say again, Jesus? What was that? You know, when they were just talking about the sermon, trying to have that precision. Uh, I, I know it's, it's fiction, but it was really neat. But as Matthew's nearing the conclusion of recording Jesus' sermon, as he recalls it, inspired. It's fitting that he once again uses a form of a triad. A tripartite ending. Three parts in the ending consisting of three metaphors that drive home the thrust of the whole discourse. And, and we're going to look at two of those this morning and save the third. Uh, the story of the wise and the foolish man. The builders. We're going to save that for next Sunday. Because... I want to talk about that one specifically in terms of doing the will of God. But the first and the second metaphors are held together by the difference between external appearance and internal reality. With the idea that there really are only two ways, there are only two choices that we have placed before us. And I said, when beginning, there's not a day goes by, probably not an hour, that the choices that we make, that we're forced to make, don't have a significant impact on our lives. But have you ever been put in a situation where the choices are overwhelming? I had a friend who had a missionary who was home on furlough after 15 years. He had not been back to the States in 15 years. 
And he said, come on, let's go grocery shopping. And he said, when they turned the aisle and looked down the aisle where the cereal was, he just stood there. He said, you okay? He said, yeah. But 15 years ago, we had cornflakes. We had shredded wheat. We had, and he named just a few, Raisin Bran. We didn't have a whole aisle that you had to choose from. There's an article written by Dr. Charles Chafin that appeared in the July 23 issue of Psychology Today. And it's titled, Choice Overload. I Can't Decide How to Manage the Infinite Choices That Are in Our Lives. And in one of the most famous studies regarding choice, this study sets out the fact that there were customers presented with the option of 24 different items in terms of jams or just six. And although the larger display of 24 jams garnered the most interest initially, the vast percentage of them chose from where the six were. They were happier with the choice they made than those who had chosen from the 24. Because given the options, it can be difficult to evaluate. And sometimes we, we start to rethink and we cognitively, mentally get questioning ourselves. Well, gosh, should I have chosen the strawberry rhubarb or just the strawberry? Choices. And that can lead to anxiety and worry about making the wrong choice. Why didn't I do this or that? And we have often been saddled with hard-hitting choices. The Sermon on the Mount has repeatedly forced us to look at choices that were given in life, beginning with those mentioned in the Beatitudes, though, and through the triads concerning our attitudes toward such things as divorce and anger and giving and prayer. Right up to the admonition two weeks ago concerning our judgment and our discernment. I, I like the way that Eugene Peterson translates Proverbs chapter 13 verse 6. A God-loyal life keeps you on track. Sin dumps the wicked in the ditch. I tell you, I cannot tell you how many times that I've been in a situation like one that I'm in now, counseling with a couple of young couples where everything was going along fairly well in their relationship and a decision was made to do something that they knew was wrong, they knew was sinful. And now their marriage is hanging in the brinks. Gary York once wrote, 
Living a life of fellowship with God is based on a series of choices and they begin with a fundamental one soundly stated by Jesus in Matthew 7 13 and what Gary's pointing to is the challenge that Jesus issues to be consistent in our choices and in our practices Jesus begins by identifying the choice a choice that Jesus made very clear in John 14 6 when he said I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me and then in a statement that supports the thrust of our passage this morning he points to the narrow way of obedience just a few verses later verse 15 of chapter 14 Jesus would go on to say if you love me you will keep my commandments <coughs> this is why we hear about a, a narrow way it's the way of obedience the way of loyalty and later in verse 21 whoever ha has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me so how do we know that we're making or have made the right choice. As we start digging in, we're going to hear Jesus say, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. Let's look at our text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will be recognized, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father and who is, who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to you, to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. While I'm sure that much more could be said about our text today than what I'm going to say, there are three points that I want to emphasize that all involve our choices. Because we have been created in the image of God, we have the ability to reason, to think, and therefore to choose. And one of the most difficult doctrines, an area of biblical studies that's really hard for me to explain, is the relationship between God's omniscience, His all-knowing, 
His foreknowledge. What many speak of in terms of what God has already determined, predetermined ahead of time. And our free will. We have the freedom to choose. To accept and listen to me. To even reject. We have the ability, once we've accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we have the ability to decide, no, I'm not going to go that way anymore. That's why the writer of Hebrews, not once, but five times, worries, or goes back into and explains the whole worry that we should have over falling away. Making the wrong choice. Not to mention what is said elsewhere. I mean, think about Hymenaeus and Alexander. They are mentioned as people of faith. Paul says they shipwrecked their faith. And my understanding of ships is you can't wreck one unless you have one. They had to have had faith to shipwreck their faith. And I think really, I think our text today is one that bears that out as well. As disciples, we have the freedom to choose which gate we're going to enter. Jesus actually begins with a command. You enter. It's an imperative that serves as the thesis statement for the entire section. You enter the kingdom of God, but do it by the narrow gate. That's the only one that gets you there. And the image of narrowness suggests that there is a constriction of our choices involved in the challenge of Jesus' teaching. Now I know that smacks at the cry we hear daily in America for tolerance and, and for allowing people to have more choices. But the narrow gate throws up images of the need to make choices that are not obvious. Choices of where the crowd is not wanting to go and not going to go. The alternative to the narrow gate is a wide gate. And the unstated assumption is that, first of all, everybody has to go through a gate, one of the two, either the narrow gate or the wide gate. That secondly, everyone will end up somewhere once they go through those gates. And that thirdly, that there's only two gates that exist. And by extending, expanding the metaphor to include this idea of a way... That's, that's language they used in Jesus' time to talk about a way of living. The way you walked daily. What you did. And that's best seen, I think, that the way that leads to the gate in question, we realize that there is a particular gate related to a particular path. A way of life. And so, having been told initially to enter by the narrow gate, we're now faced with a question of the way to get to that gate. 
And to get to the right gate, one has to choose the right way. And the imagery of a way introduces the idea of a journey that introduces the idea of a duration of time. Which would naturally add the notion of some tenacity. Uh, this is hard. We as a family went down to Turkey Run State Park uh, and did some hiking. And we chose one of the paths. And partially along the path, I said, and, and even more so when we were out at Maine with Eric and we were doing some hiking out there, I said, you know what? I should have let you all go this way and I should have gone the way that said the easy path. It requires tenacity. I'm going to keep making the right choice day after day because I want to get to where that narrow gate, that narrow hard way leads. I spent a lot of my life watching every little thing that I ate. When I went to Wabash College, I had the lowest body fat of any of the ball players that showed up because I decided I was going to be in the best of shape so that I could not only make the team but be one of the leaders. But I'll tell you what, there were times there were times that people in my family were stopping to get ice cream and everything. And I had to say, no, can't go there. Not going to do it. Choices. And notice that the easy traveling conditions, where do they lead? To destruction. To which Jesus had some pretty frightening words. And those who enter by it are many. I don't think we think that way. I think we think that, oh, all of our family members are okay. They're going to make it. They're good people. Are they a part of the many or a part of the few? I think we tend to place them in the category of the ones that are going to make it. And that's kind of not what this teaching Jesus gives is about. This is the only place, by the way, in Matthew where the word that's translated destruction is used as an image of the judgment of God in condemnation. But it hardly needs to be said that judgment is a theme found frequently not only throughout Matthew, but throughout the whole New Testament. And in the Gospel of Matthew, as his readers, we're constantly pointed to our own answerability to the searching scrutiny of God's judgment. In fact, already in our text, by no means taken out of context, are the words of verse 21 where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And notice what some of those people were doing. Preaching. Casting out demons. I, I don't I don't think I've ever cast out a demon. 
I, I say that that way because I did pray over a young lady one time who was acting pretty bizarrely. And she straightened up. But the more we talked about it, myself and the doctor, the more we realized there were little things that she was doing that indicated maybe it was all for attention. Not that she was really suffering from possession or from an emotional problem other than the need to get her husband to pay some positive attention to her. And yet those people who the Bible says were prophesying, preaching, and casting out demons, those people say, Lord, Lord. And he says, I don't know you. You see, heaven's gate is narrow because it's a gate that involves self-denial. And that's a way that's not popular. It's countercultural. Which leads directly to my second point. Disciples are to choose carefully to whom they should listen to. Verse 23, the words are daunting. I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And verse 15 is a reality statement. Once again, Jesus uses a command. You beware. There are going to be false prophets, false teachers, who give every appearance to be as gentle as sheep. But they're really ravenous wolves. Most of us have experienced the shock of Jim Jones and Guyana. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jim Jones's father was a preacher in a Christian church, Church of Christ in Indianapolis. Our brotherhood of churches. Most of us are aware of the Branch Davidians and the big fire at Waco, Texas. But, but most of us don't even seem to be bothered when we hear people of praising the likes of the smiling television evangelists of Houston, Texas. Joel Osteen, whose net worth is over $100 million. And why not? He refuses to preach about the evils of sin because that discourages people and keeps them from living their best lives. And so they financially support him to hear more of that. It takes care of their itching ears. If I were forced to pick a main point of verses 15 to 20, it would be that as true disciples, as Christians, it's imperative that we practice discernment when listening to a voice of those who claim to speak for God. We're called to know the truth. And one way, according to Jesus, is to see the kind of fruit they're producing. Good trees bear good fruit. Diseased trees bear fruit and limbs that deserve to be thrown into the fire. John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. And Luke would write in Acts that the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? 
because they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not, as I heard again this week, not somebody who said, well, I was listening to the History Channel and I said, turn it off. Just because it says PhD after their name. That whole group called the Jesus Seminar all had PhD after their name and most of them didn't even believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection. Turn it off. Use God's Word. Use the Bible to determine whether or not what you're hearing is in accordance with God's Word. John Stott calls false teaching both dangerous and deceptive. Dangerous because they don't have to be that wrong. The principle of one degree of separation. Deceptive because they make every effort to make it look appealing. Genesis 2. Satan said to Eve, Oh, did God actually say not to eat of any tree? Why, you'll surely not die, but your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Now here's the bad thing. When that first bite was taken, she didn't drop dead. Because if the death would have followed immediately after the act of sin, I guarantee you Adam would have said, mm, I don't think I'll take a bite. <laughs> but that delay deceives us. We have to choose carefully who we're going to listen to, to believe and to trust. And thirdly, I believe this passage teaches us that disciples, as disciples, we're to choose wisely what we will depend on. Religious activity is the natural outcome, the natural expression of our faith, and we're all involved in doing what seems to be the natural expression of our faith, even if it's only attending a worship service on Sunday morning. Jesus makes it clear that it's the fruit of our activity that determines whether or not a prophet is a real prophet, whether or not a disciple is a true disciple, whether or not a believer is a true believer. We are called to do the will of the Father. But what's that mean? Everyone knows the accepted practice of specific congregations. Some churches are pie churches, some are no pie. Some churches are traditional or contemporary music. Or in the traditional, you can even break that down further. Some are traditional and some are southern gospel traditional in terms of their music choices. Some are communion first, communion in the middle, communion at the end of service. Hold your bread and your cup until everybody partakes together. Or partake as it's passed. As Christians, we're called to know the true activity that indicates a genuine relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, it has nothing to do with whether or not we're pie or no pie, whether or not we're contemporary, traditional, or southern gospel music, whether or not, none of those things matter. What matters 
is whether or not we know and are doing the will of the Father. And that seems to challenge us to answer at least two questions. Do we do what we say? Is there consistency in our way of life? Do our actions agree with our words? And secondly, do we do what He says? Are we willing to be obedient to the Word of God as it comes from Him? Or is it more important what we think or we feel? You see, the bottom line to getting into the kingdom, being a kingdom person, is making the right choices. And a lot of that has to do with our attitude toward others. We looked at that a couple last Sunday. Our attitude toward others. This is the slide I used last Sunday. When I talked about the golden rule. Are we remembering what Jesus taught? That choosing how we treat others, remembering how we want to be treated, how we expect to be treated, should be the norm. Choosing the right gate. You know, it's easy to point your finger and accuse somebody of not doing something the way it should be done. But it's pretty hard to have that finger pointed at you and told you're not doing things the way they need to be done and are supposed to be done? Are we willing to live up to the same standard of treating others that we place on ourselves? And you know, here's where it gets really scary. The model prayer. What's Jesus say? And Father... Forgive me my trespasses. My faults, my sins. How? As I forgive others. So, what's the challenge that we face? I think a biblical metric... Is that a good term, Hannah and Brian? And, and Jordan back here, good instructional term, got this metric that we're going to, to grade by. I think a good biblical metric for, is the metric for maturity. The fruit of the Spirit. By the way, fruit in that verse is singular. In English, we use it for both singular and plural. But when Paul writes in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. See, we haven't punctuated that verse correctly. The fruit singular is love. Should be a colon, not a comma. Love is not a part of the list. Love is the fruit. How do we know what love is? It's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against those things there is no law. But we, we have to make a choice. Let's pray.